0: This morning, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. I want to start off and look at just a few verses here. Philippians chapter 1, and we want to look at verses 21 down to verse 30. 21 to 30. Philippians 1, 21 to 30. Verse 21 says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Verse Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for, for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So we hear these words from the Apostle Paul, and we know that uh, he had a love for the Philippian church. And we know that uh, they were the church that gave to the Apostle Paul when he was in need, Uh, and he loved them for that. And we know that Paul was going through some difficult times, and we see from chapter 1 that we know Paul was in prison, and he was in prison in Rome at the time of of this writing, and he had a a lot of opponents, people that were a challenge to him. And that was in Paul's day. Today, we see a rising animosity towards Christianity— Uh, there are many opponents. There's a militant atheism uh, that exists today uh, that didn't exist 20 to to 30 years ago. There's a secularism in America now that really pushes uh, that secularism uh, into every aspect of our lives, and it tries to distance itself from Christianity or religion for that matter, or any connections to God or Christ. And we see that sometimes even in uh, some of the cemeteries that have these crosses. And there'll be the atheist groups that'll come out and try to uh, take down the cross because it's offensive to them. Christianity is viewed as narrow-mindedness more and more. And and to some degree, that's true. We believe in the truth. But from their perspective, it's a closed-mindedness Uh, or outright foolishness to unbelievers. And many times uh, there are those who blame Christians as the cause for war, divisiveness, lack of compassion, lack of love, or tolerance. And recently I saw this on display with a popular musician who put out a a video, a music video, and had a a group of people that were standing there with a bunch of signs, and they were protesting. And some of the signs said things like this, quote, Get a brain, you moron, end of quote. And the crowd is screaming and waving their hands at all the sinners. And that was, in that video, portraying Christians and saying basically that they're dirty, sweaty, mean, and unintelligent Kind of keep that in mind as we go on here. But that's the perspective. Now, are these uh, caricatures true? What does the Bible say about how we're to respond to those who oppose the message of Christ and His Word, Uh, even when what they say about us isn't true or it's a distortion? How should we respond? Do we follow the spirit of our age and do we uh, get just as aggressive back in their face as a, as aggressive as they're being towards us? How are we to respond? You know, maybe you've experienced it, and I've, I talked to some of you this morning that have had some experiences of uh, those that are being antagonistic towards you, whether it's in the workplace or in the family setting. So maybe it's family members or or friends at work or neighbors. And, and they have this similar view. What we want to do today is just take a look at the heart of the Apostle Paul and what did he tell the Philippians about how they were to live in the midst of an antagonistic world. Um, there were opponents that Paul had. First of all, the Romans, obviously, he's in Roman, uh, being imprisoned in Rome, um, he had the Christian Judaizers, those that said you had to abide by the, the law. Uh, the Pharisees were always dogging Paul. And then even the zealots who were out there that wanted to take measures into their own hands. What was it like to, to live in the first century? Well, if you found yourself in the first century in Jerusalem, in the home of a member of the Jewish ruling class, it would be something like this. He would be able to speak Latin, Greek, and Aramaic. He'd be dressed in Hellenistic clothing, Hellenistic meaning Greek influence. He possesses Roman citizenship and claims to worship the God of the Jews. His home contains artwork from the Mediterranean, and his library uh, contains the works of a few pagan authors. And when it comes to politics, he talks about the Jewish Sanhedrin, but also about the Roman threat of power over Jerusalem and and many other places for that matter. And there's a desire and a longing for Jewish independence. And it's in this context that first century Christianity found itself. And the Jews were afraid the Christians would make their life harder by upsetting the Romans. So you had both the Jewish leaders and Romans as opponents of Christianity. On top of the political situation. You also had false teachers that were challenging the church, the Gnostics, and those who denied the deity of Christ and wanted to distort who Jesus uh, is. There were plenty of opponents that Paul had in mind when he wrote this part of Philippians chapter 1. And how were Christians viewed by the Greeks and the Romans? They were seen as the same class as lowly shepherds Shepherds were thought of as dirty and smelly. Kind of sounds familiar with the illustration I used at the beginning of today. Uh, they spent most of their time outdoors with animals. Aristotle said that among men, the laziest are shepherds who lead an idle life and get their subsistence without trouble from tame animals, their flocks having to wander from place to place in search of pasture. They are compelled to follow them, cultivating a sort of, quote, living farm. So most Romans believed that shepherds practiced highway robbery as well. So you can imagine what a Roman would think when you hear about Christianity and the metaphor that's used of Jesus Christ as the good shepherd, one of the central metaphors of Christianity. It wouldn't have made any sense to them if they didn't hear about uh, a God that saves, and God as the good shepherd, and King David as a loving, responsible shepherd. So this only helped to confirm the disreputable nature of Christianity to the Romans. And the Roman writer Suetonius called Christians, quote, a novel and mischievous superstition. So this was a view that they had back then. Uh, The upper classes, of uh, the the Roman society, Uh, they looked down on people who made things like in the crafts, artisans, uh, as well as like Paul. He made tents. Uh, Most of those who did this work were slaves, and that was the view that the, the Romans and the Greeks had of those in the crafts. The Roman orator Cicero once said that a workshop does not befit the honor of a free person, Artisans were viewed by the elites as lacking in virtue and uneducated, and so Paul seems to respond to this in First Corinthians nine nineteen when he says, quote, "For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more." So it's in this backdrop, and we have this in mind, that Paul comes to the Philippians and he tells them, you know how you how they needed to live. And the city of Philippi was a Roman colony, and its citizens were actually Roman citizens, protected by Roman law. Likewise, the church of Jesus Christ is a colony of heaven on earth. And it's from this reality that Paul launches into these next few verses. So, Philippians chapter 1, we know Paul is imprisoned in Rome, and he tells them, "Hey, the progress of the gospel is going out because of my imprisonment, to the point that the whole Praetorian guard has heard the message of the gospel." And this gave courage to the believers. And as he's moving through this in chapter one, and he works his way to talk about for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, he's at a crossroads in his life. He's. Like, I, I would rather die and go to be with Christ, but I could live now here in this world and be an encouragement to you, the Philippians. And so we see that he would like to do this for them. Paul then moves on to his main point here with one word. And we this morning what we want to do is we want to look at six ways to be ready. We, I entitled this, Don't be alarmed, be ready. And by the way, there are some extra notes in the back over there if you need them, if you didn't get them. But six ways to be ready, um, the Christian's conduct in a hostile world. The first way that we want to look at this morning is to be good citizens of heaven, good citizens of heaven. How many times have, uh, if you've gone maybe on a trip and maybe you leave the kids behind or you have somebody that's watching your house or your pet's, And you say, uh, you know, do all of these things, but but, but here, there's this one important thing. Don't forget this. Don't forget to feed the dog, you know, because if you don't forget to feed the dog, the dog's going to die. So whatever it is that's the most important thing, you emphasize that. Well, Paul starts off in verse 27, conduct yourselves, and he uses that word only. And it's a very important thing to see how we should live our lives in relation to our opponents and amongst each other. And so what matters most uh, to Paul is that when he's absent from them, uh, his heart is with them. And he's saying, only do this. And it's placed at the beginning of the sentence in Greek for emphasis, It means above all, your lives should reflect upon the gospel in a way that brings glory to God. And whether Paul comes to them or not, his point is that they live out their heavenly citizenship in a manner worthy of Christ. So even though the church of Philippi was a mature church, Paul knew that it doesn't take long for a church to go downhill fast. So he warns them to be on guard against false teachers in chapter 3, verse 2, and repudiate those in the congregation who were enemies of the cross of Christ. Behave in a way, is what Paul is saying, that is consistent with the power of the gospel. We are to look into our own hearts and see if we have integrity. This appeal is for all Christians at any point in time in history. What mattered the most was their consistent holy conduct. When the church is looked at by the unsaved world and they see no holiness, purity, or virtue, there appears to be no reason to believe the gospel because of, you know, what's the common thing that most of us hear from unsaved people? What is it that turns people off? Hypocrisy. A lot of times they'll say, you know, oh, the church is just full of hypocrites. And sometimes that is true. There's been hypocrisy from the the beginning of the church. Um, But we we don't want to give them ammunition by living that way. Uh, True believers won't live that way. Uh, When pastors commit gross sins and are later restored to positions of leadership in the church, when church members lie, steal, cheat, gossip, and quarrel, And when congregations care little about such sin and hypocrisy in their midst, the world is repulsed, and we're called out many times for those types of things. And that's why church discipline is an important uh, part of church life. Um, I know recently of a family that was visiting here uh, to Grace Church, and they showed up on a Sunday during the communion service, like today, and... uh, a name was being read, of uh, a person that was being disciplined uh, at our church, and it was just a shocking thing for them to, to see that somebody's name was read in front of the whole church. And what it did is it impressed them, impressed them in the sense of it made an impact on them that, hey, we take sin seriously here, and that's what we need to do in our own personal lives as well take sin seriously. And that's what Paul was calling the Philippians to do. In Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 15 to 16, it says, prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. And so, Paul's first emphasis, to be good citizens of heaven, he's like, only do this one thing. And he spends a lot of time, and he he moves down and talks about your conduct. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, this word conduct is a very interesting word. In the Greek, uh, it has the root word polis, or polis, however you want to say that. But you can think of the word metropolis. And it has to do with uh, the city and being a citizen. It implies being a good citizen, that your conduct brings honor to the political body, the city that you live in, where you belong, And uh, that's the the root word of it. And there were these city-states to which the inhabitants gave their allegiance. A good citizen's conduct brings honor uh, to to a city if, if his behavior is honorable. Paul speaks of conduct, and he will usually refer to it in a way that he talks about walking. And so he does that here, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, um, in chapter 3, verse 20 of Philippians, he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the same word that's, that's used here for our conduct. Um, so we have here the city of Philippi, and they were able to boast that they had a privileged status as a Roman colony. And because of Octavian, a Roman ruler, after his decisive victory on the plains of Philippi, and because of this, the people of Philippi had Roman citizenship conferred on them. And they took great pride in this fact. And the verb here literally means that they were to live as citizens of the the Roman Empire. That was a part of it, to, to... Follow the laws that they had in place there in Philippi. And so they were living as citizens. When you join this with the the word worthy, and another way to say it is to live worthily, he's using this as a metaphor, meaning not to live as citizens necessarily just of Rome, but rather to live in the Roman colony of Philippi as worthy citizens of your heavenly homeland. Roman society, like Greek society, was community-oriented. Your skills and talents and energy were directed at the interest of your community. A responsible citizen was careful not to bring shame on his city. He always tried to be an honorable citizen. Paul states this in chapter 3, verses 17 to 20. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies. And and these were enemies, more than likely, outside of the church at the time. Enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So our conduct should bring honor to our city. That's his point. You need to be worthy of the gospel, is what Paul says. And he's giving the Philippians the parameters of the the new city that they belong to. They are citizens of this new city, and they have responsibilities to fulfill as believers. Live a life that corresponds to the divine truth Christians profess. That's what Paul's saying. Ephesians 4 1 also states walk in a manner worthy of the calling which, with, with which you have been called. Faithful citizens of heaven. We know the church is imperfect because it has imperfect people. We're sinners. But the church is here and is given to us by the Lord as a manifestation of that perfect and eternal kingdom of heaven in the present age. We are to be a reflection of that eternal kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And, you know, the Philippians had the ability to fulfill these responsibilities in the midst of their suffering, and they had a way to do this in a way that would be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, There was now no room for selfish ambition, grumbling, or disputing. The Philippians heard the gospel preached by Paul, and God called them to himself. He saved them. 2 Thessalonians 2 states in verses 13 to 14, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. And so the Philippians knew the Lord and they had heard the gospel preached by Paul. And he's encouraging them to be good citizens, to live in a worthy manner. And that involved the government that was in charge and God. And it was for this he called you through the gospel that you may gain glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're to live our lives in such a way in every situation, that we are giving glory to God. That's the goal. The Philippian Christians were never citizens of covenant of the covenant nation Israel. Ephesians 2.12, remember that you are, were at the time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was their, their situation before. But they were fellow citizens now, with the saints and of the household of God. Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Fellow citizens with the saints. So they really had a double citizenship. You could put it that way. Sometimes you meet people like that. They have uh, double citizenship or maybe even triple citizenship. Uh, They're from one country, but another country has allowed them to be a citizen. And Paul's using that type of an illustration to show them that, yes, you do, you have your responsibilities here on earth, but you have the responsibility to show them your citizenship in heaven. And it's the power of the gospel that would allow them to live in this way. Pastor MacArthur put it this way, the power, quote, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The point here is that those who belong to Christ through saving faith in his gospel, should demonstrate that power by their changed lives, by their changed lives. There's many other New Testament passages that talk about walking in a manner worthy of your calling. It all comes back to Paul encouraging them with this one thing, this one thing, their conduct. And what is the church's greatest testimony before the world? it's our spiritual integrity. When we live below the biblical standards in relation to morality and reverence for our Lord, we compromise. When this happens, we seriously weaken the credibility of the gospel and lessen the impact on the world. God is in control of everything, and he will save who he will save. It's not dependent on us but he has told us in his word how we're to live before the world and the testimony that we should have. And so the Apostle Paul is doing that here for the Philippians. Paul also exhorted the Ephesians uh, to walk worthy of the vocation of what they've been called to. And Paul, we know, was a Roman citizen as well, and he knew what it meant to be able to uh, live in a city have Roman citizenship, to be able to fall back on that Roman citizenship. But he also knew he had to take a stand for Christ and couldn't compromise in relation to uh, what the Romans wanted him to do. Paul knew that he was primarily a citizen of heaven. What does the citizen of heaven occupy himself or herself with on earth? Well, number one, there's fellow citizens, brothers and sisters in Christ, but also people that we run into uh, every day. Um, But as citizens of heaven, we have our brothers and sisters in Christ. Secondly, turn your backs on the enemies of the cross of Christ. That means we don't hold on to the things of this world, and those who turn their backs on Christ, we treat them that same way but we demonstrate love to them at the same time. You also, thirdly, devote your heart to Christ. This is what a citizen of heaven occupies themselves with. The behavior of a heavenly citizen is what is at stake here. We need to strive towards that heavenly model that is to come. Jonathan Edwards, he talked about heaven And as we look to heaven from this side of the world, and he put it this way, quote, no inhabitants of that blessed world, heaven, will ever be grieved with the thought that they are slighted by those that they love, or that their love is not fully and fondly returned. There shall be no such thing as flattery or insincerity in heaven, but their perfect sincerity shall reign through all in all. Everyone will be just what he seems to be and will really have all the love that he seems to have. It will not be as in this world, where comparatively few things are what they seem to be and where professions are often made lightly and without meaning. But there, every expression of love shall come from the bottom of the heart, and all that is professed shall be really and truly felt. End of quote. That's how Jonathan Edwards put it, looking towards heaven. And that's, that's our goal here in this world in which we live. And when we find ourselves in the midst of an antagonistic world, we have to keep heaven in mind. And as the church of Christ, what our goal truly is. We are to, in the process of being citizens of heaven, conducting ourselves in a worthy manner, we also are to be Christ's ambassadors. Christ's ambassadors. Ephesians 4 2 says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. You know, we as believers, we, uh, we want to be good representatives, ambassadors of Christ in this world. Uh, definitely amongst each other, right? As believers but even more so when it comes to the unsaved world. We don't want to be antagonistic, unnecessarily antagonistic. You know, certain images come to mind when you think of this. Uh, People like the Westboro Baptist Church, it's called a church, it's not a church, but they have that name tied to them, unfortunately, who go out and just scream and yell and holler and kind of do what those people do in that video that I was talking about at the beginning. But that might be more at the extreme level, But we can also do that at times, too, with uh, family members and friends at work. We can become uh, antagonistic, unnecessarily so. But we want to look at examples. How did Jesus deal with his opponents? Well, one of the things that you observe when you look at the life of Christ is he would ask them questions, and he would have them answer him. Uh, Number one, he exposed their motives. When uh, he healed a disfigured man on the Sabbath, what Jesus did did is he exposed their prideful hearts. Uh, Jesus also sought peace. When Jesus was arrested and Peter drew his sword, he had self-control and told Peter to put his sword up because he was taking on uh, the arrest of Jesus in a uh, fleshly way and. Jesus was saying his kingdom is not of this world. Jesus applied the scripture uh, when he was sitting with the tax collectors, and and he was being criticized for that. He would use the scriptures. He prayed in Gethsemane in John chapter 17. He prayed for himself and his disciples and for all believers. He was going through a uh, difficult time right before being arrested and giving his life as a sacrifice, and he prayed Many times, this is a good one to practice, uh, he remains silent. You know, there's, there's times when we might be in some kind of a discussion and it can lead to a heated discussion and maybe even an argument. There's times that we just need to be silent when we're dealing with those who are antagonistic and hostile to the gospel. Jesus loved on the cross He didn't lash out or use His power to inflict pain on people. But what did He say when He's on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He had forgiveness on people. And so each of us as believers are God's ambassadors, and we're to take the gospel of Christ to this hostile world. We should imitate, be like Christ and and those that have the the great examples of us that we find in in the scriptures. What is an ambassador? It's put this way: it's an official an official envoy, especially a high-ranking diplomat who represents a state and is usually accredited to another sovereign state or to an international organization as the resident representative of their government. And basically that person has all the authority to represent that country that they are from. And we have that authority as believers. We're to represent Jesus Christ. We need to keep that in mind. Um, So being good citizens of heaven, we're conducting ourselves in a worthy manner. We're Christ's ambassadors. And then being devoted citizens. Uh, No supervision is needed. And when we look here at verse 27, Paul makes that statement at the end of the verse, so whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. Uh, It doesn't matter if he was with the Philippians or not. He's saying, this is how you need to live. Um, Many times in companies, there are, and in factories, there's foremen that are needed to motivate the workers to achieve their goals and deadlines. And the tendency for workers many times is when the boss is away, you know, they're not working as hard, and so they have these foremen there to help keep them in line so that they stay on schedule. And as Christians, we're to labor for our Lord all the time because of our devotion to Christ, because we, we don't labor as it's put in Colossians 3.22, with eye service, as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And so Paul is encouraging them to be devoted, be devoted citizens, with or without me, whether I come or not. And you know he had a heart to come to them, um, but he wasn't ever able to make it back there again to to see them. And, you know, just think of how his heart went out to them. Um, It'd be like if... uh, Pastor MacArthur had to go speak somewhere far away in a country, and something happened, and he couldn't get back to the, to Grace Church here. And he wasn't able to be here. He'd want to hear, you know, what's happening at Grace Church, you know, he, because he loves the church. And we, we, would, we love him, so we would miss him and want to know what's happening with him. There was this same type of love going on between Paul and and the Philippian church. And he's saying, be devoted citizens. So whether I come or not, continue on in the faith, because that's the reality of our faith in Christ. We put the gospel on display by our steadfast living being an outgrowth of our heavenly destination. And we, we want to do that. Live a devoted life to Christ. When we live as true citizens of heaven, we will secondly stand in unity. So the first one is be good citizens of heaven. And under that is living in a worthy manner and Christ's ambassadors and a devoted citizen. But then secondly, second main point, stand in unity. Standing firm in one spirit is what Paul says. It indicates that they were to maintain this stand, Throughout their earthly residency, to be stationary in a fixed position. You don't want to be pushed or moved around by another force, but to be anchored in one place. And so the point is stand firm, Philippians, as individuals and corporately, as the, the body of Christ. They must not be, be moved away from their allegiance to the gospel. They need to be anchored in the truth of the apostles' teaching. To stand firm, uh, means that, you know, when the, the biggest trials come, and, and maybe you've seen this at different times, there might be drastic situations that can happen in a believer's life or in a church's life, but it's usually when those times come that Christians best stand their ground. When, when they are struggling, it's when they show great courage. And that's what Paul is telling them. Live your lives in such a way, because they were going through uh, persecution. And this is a military term that pictures a soldier holding his position in battle. kind of reminds me of uh, in Pompeii uh, when the volcano erupted. Uh, And today, you know, they they have the city of Pompeii there. It was preserved quite well. And one of the things that they found, they they found a lot of different people in different positions of, of how they died. But one that really struck me is of a Roman soldier that they, still, they found basically at the gate, still in his armor, guarding the gate. Either he hadn't been relieved of his duty, so he stood his ground, even though he knew he was going to die uh, and be buried alive. I mean, that's the picture that we have, really, of standing our ground for the gospel in the midst of, of whatever persecution or antagonism that's, that's going to come our way. And Paul says, "...in one spirit." It's, uh, that has to do with internal power or drive. Uh, and this has to deal with not necessarily the Holy Spirit, although we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, but a oneness of purpose created uh, within the human spirit, created by the Holy Spirit. And there can be no true unity among believers without the sovereign control of the Spirit in our lives. In uh, Acts 4.32, it says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to him. And this was right after Peter and John were released from the Jewish leaders, filled with the Holy Spirit after praying, and they went out in boldness. And they had a oneness uh, of spirit. And so all of us as believers have been equally baptized in that one Spirit into the body of Christ, the true church, and we have drunk by faith of the Spirit, and we're indwelt by Him, and we have access by Him to the Father, and we must strive to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And it's a unity that's marked by one body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. That's Ephesians 4, 3-6. to in Romans 12, verses 4 to 5, it says, Be of the same mind. 1 Corinthians 1.10, complete in the same mind. And so Paul's calling for harmony here. And it's not just individually, but as the church. It's a common spirit is what we have to strive for as the body of Christ, a common spirit. But how do we, how do, we do that? Well, he also says, One mind. So one spirit and one mind, it's really two ways of saying the same thing, but emphasizing two different things. One mind is the entirety of one's soul, the intellect and affections. And it's literally one soul. Their souls were joined together. That's what he's telling them. Whenever you go through some kind of a struggle together, uh, maybe an unusual uh, circumstance as you're traveling, uh, uh, an event happens, and you work together to get through it. Uh, sometimes it's people you don't even know. And then after that tragic event and you've worked through it, suddenly you're best friends. Well, that's, that's what takes place when you struggle together. When you're, that's the kind of picture that we're talking about, joined together. But we have much more as the body of Christ to be joined together about. And so be of one mind and one spirit, and we're standing in unity. Uh, you know people today are united about many issues today: uh, the environment, unequal pay, inequality of any kind, uh, kneeling at football games you name it it 's a group that will come out and be unified for any kind of cost. Uh, how much more should the body of Christ be unified together for an eternal purpose? you know? Those types of things come and go. They're fads. But what does it say to the world that we're unified about the gospel of Christ? They may reject it. Most of the, t- most of the time they do. But sometimes they don't. Sometimes they see in us a unity that is appealing to them. Uh, and that's what our goal is, to stand in unity. True citizens, unified, will also evangelize together, evangelize together, striving together, contending together, preserving. So that's third, stand in evangelism. And we see that there towards the end of verse 27, Um, one spirit and one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. They were to act as teammates. And the word athlete comes from the Greek verb translated, striving together. Uh, In football, the offense and the defense should complement each other, but they should not blame each other. Each believer must complete his assignment. And Paul cautioned, also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. And for us, as believers, the rules is... God's Scripture. We have God's Word. We're to follow what God wants us to do, and, but we are to strive together. Um, you know, when you run in track, as the illustration that Paul gives, if you step outside of your lane, you could have run a great race all until the, almost to the very end, but if you've stepped outside of your lane, you're disqualified. And he's saying you got to strive together, contend together, Uh, in that competition. Striving together as opposed to striving or competing against. The church is striving together against sin and the ultimate enemy, which is Satan. It's not the unbelievers. It's Satan. Genuine unity has a purpose, and the church's only true unity is grounded in the faith of the gospel. Striving together advances the faith of the gospel but it also halts whatever opposes it. Um, I think about this often. Uh, I'm on staff here at Grace and a pastor in the outreach department and work with the the missionaries, and I just think about all of the missionary efforts that are going on around the world uh, because of our unity here at Grace Community Church. If we were not unified, and I'm not saying perfectly, of course, but We are unified together. The leadership is unified. The body of believers are unified. And because of that, we're able to send missionaries out because we're unified together in the purpose of taking the gospel to the world, to our community. And if we were not unified, just think about how many people would not have heard the gospel in the countries that our missionaries are in. Many times um, there is... Hostility. We have the, the opponents that we talked about at the beginning. But when we're unified, that helps for the rest of the gospel. As Paul put it, being imprisoned in Rome, even though he was shackled there in the, the Roman prison, the, like we said, the praetorian guard heard, uh, they saw his steadfast trust in the Lord. And that spoke volumes to them. So here in verse 27, Paul quickly changes the picture from a soldier at a battle station to athletes working as a team, side by side, playing the game, not as several individuals, uh, as an island to themselves, but together as one person with one mind for one goal. And the goal is to preserve the faith uh, about the gospel. Uh, I also think back about uh, working with the missionaries. We had a missionary conference one year in the country of Norway, and we were at a uh, large hotel, and it was in a small town in Norway. And so we had the whole uh, place to ourselves, the, the grounds. And it was just a, a huge area of grass and just beautiful landscape there in Norway. And the STM team that we had that, that came to the missionary conference and the leadership of that team. They set it all up for a bunch of events for the missionaries that day. And we were up in the hotel with the hotel staff, and they were Norwegians. And i just never forget, you know, as they watched the events of the day take place and how much we cared for our missionaries. But then at the end, you know, all the events had taken place. And there's all kinds of banners and red, white, and blue type of things uh, hanging all around on the property. And then they saw the STM team go to work and just methodically take everything down within the scope of, I don't know, 30 minutes to an hour. And I just remember them turning and looking at us and saying, wow, this is really great for our people to see a group uh, work together to get things done. And it was just kind of a a shocking thing to hear them say that because I think we're used to that trying to work together that way. But that's the type of picture that we're talking about in the body of Christ, working together. The ultimate reason we strive together is because of the gospel. And it's for the faith of the gospel. And when Paul uses that term, it's the body of truth uh, we need to defend the faith and win converts at the same time. So think about that. I'm defending something, but at the same time, I'm winning converts. So I have to do it in such a way that I'm not purposely offending them or antagonizing them, but I need to be honoring, honor the gospel as I'm proclaiming it to them. Uh, the faith. And there's a definite article in the Greek right before it And and that's how we know it's referring to the body of truth that the local church must preserve and propagate, proclaim. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul knew that some would depart from the faith. Um, 1 Timothy 3.15 says, But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. What does Jude say about this? Contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Uh, Jude 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all handed down to the saints. So the faith is the gospel. Bottom line uh, is the gospel is the urgent matter here. Uh, And their own progress and joy in the faith in verse 25, which Paul uh, says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith, uh, mutual love and unity, is directly related to their contending side by side as believers for the faith of the gospel. Again, contending together builds unity. It does. It builds unity. Why do we feel isolated from other believers many times? Well, it's because we're not contending side by side. We are contending many times with each other or even by ourselves. Isolating ourselves from the body. Well, citizens... United and evangelizing together encourages us also to stand without fear. Verse, or this would be point four. Stand without fear, and in verse twenty-eight, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. We need to be steadfast in the face of opposition. Many times this word alarmed is a verb that was used of horses that were frightened or spooked into uncontrollable stampede. Um, Our opponents are citizens of this world, but we should not be alarmed. Um, I saw an illustration of of a stampede in Cambodia uh, many years ago. They had a A three-day water festival with boat races, uh, and it was on an island uh, and a river in that particular island in the capital city there in in Cambodia. Ten people fell unconscious in the crowd, and it started a panic. Then a stampede to the point that people tried to cross the bridge. It was jam-packed with people, people falling off the bridge, it ended up 339 people died and 329 people injured uh, because some people fell uh, unconscious, and it was because of the, the heat, actually. Um, but that's the, the type of picture that Paul gives us here, to not be alarmed in that way about the enemies of the gospel, the, the opponents that they had. And you, you know that there were some opponents in Philippi that were very vicious towards the believers there, because we know what they did to Paul when he was there the first time. But we are citizens of heaven. Don't be alarmed. There are some advantages of our double citizenship that we have, whether we're citizens here in America, we're also citizens of heaven. But for the Philippians, uh, citizens there of Philippi and citizens of Rome, but also citizens of heaven. A believer belongs to the kingdom of God, but he also lives amongst the kingdoms of the world, which is ruled by Satan. And we know that. We know what Satan did and tried to do to Jesus when he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me. He's acting as if. He's the originator, Satan is, of having all of this when it's been given to him by God. And he says, I will give it to whomever I wish. But Jesus was the one that was in control of that. And we are citizens of heaven. So who were the adversaries of the Philippians that they would be alarmed about? Um, The Romans were and thought that the Christians were atheists because they had no images of God. Uh, the Judaizers were also uh, dogging the Christians there um, and the evil world system of Satan. But Jesus told us, be not afraid of them that kill the body. Luke 12. Tribulation would come, but Jesus had overcome the world. And so they were standing in opposition to them in Philippi. And the Philippians knew. That uh, who they who the opponents were, Paul doesn't mention them specifically who they are, but we can kind of deduce the different opponents that were there. Um, and Paul emphasized to the Philippians Christ as Lord and Savior and the loyalty of this colony to Him. And I think a part of the the reason that he emphasizes the, Jesus as Lord and Savior is because He is Lord and Savior, but also the words that he used, were likely uh, pointed at them in such a way because in Philippi there was the cult of the emperor. And it's likely that the Roman citizens of Philippi, who uh, would have honored the emperor at every public gathering, were putting pressure on the Philippian believers as well. And their allegiance now for another Kyrios, Lord, that's Jesus who had himself been executed at the hands of the Roman Empire, and in the current context in which Paul mentions that they were undergoing, quote, the same conflict that he is now engaged in because he was a prisoner of the Roman Empire, gives us good reason to believe it was more than likely uh, these were the enemies and opponents that he was talking about the pressure that was being put on them to worship the emperor and not Christ, so this opposition that took place was a twofold sign to the opponents. first, it was a sign of destruction for them, and we see that uh, there in verse twenty eight uh, don 't be alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction uh, for them and The opponents have a hostility, and this reveals the fact that they are unsaved and that they would receive the judgment of God because of their unbelief and unrighteous persecution of believers. Their practice manifested their sinful standing before God, is what Paul's saying. And that word destruction, the idea behind this word is lostness, or the very opposite, obviously, of salvation. Destruction and then salvation— Uh, These are to be understood in a future sense as well, speaking of an eternal future ruin or eternal salvation. Destruction not only involves exclusion from the Lord, but also destruction and loss of life. The end of the wicked is destruction, Philippians 3.19 states. So a sign of destruction for them, but a sign of salvation for you. Deliberate adversity is to believers proof of salvation. The world loves its own, but hates and persecutes those who have, from their vantage point, defected to God. You're no longer running with them. And many of you probably have experienced that. Uh, before you came to Christ, you had your friends, the people that you would run with. But when you came to Christ, suddenly, you know, what's happened to, to Bob? Why is he acting this way? What's wrong with him? He's lost his mind. Well, you've defected because you're following a new Lord. You're following Jesus Christ. And a Christian should rejoice when opposition comes his way because the obvious conclusion is that the world sees Christ in him. And that's what Paul says here when he says, And that, too, from God. This shows that God is the source of salvation and that he has permitted the persecution to occur within the limits of, set by him. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 4 to 5 and verses 6 to 8 there's a comparison, a contrast that goes on there. And it talks about the perseverance of faith in the midst of trials and God will afflict those that afflict you. And so the the evidence is there as to when persecution comes, it's happening because it's actually a blessing from God. And so those who are assured of their destination in heaven, they have this confidence, they're not alarmed. Such people cannot be intimidated by anyone or anything since they belong to the future with a kind of certainty that people whose lives are basically controlled by fate can never understand. In other words, people who have no hope in Christ They don't even understand the hope that we have in Christ and why we have a hope certain in the future with Him. And with this united front in spreading the gospel in Philippi by people who have this confidence, it gives them boldness. It will mean those who oppose them can in no way intimidate them. This is from God. And it's not necessarily speaking of salvation here, but the ability to stand firm in their struggles, demonstrating the salvation that they possess. Uh, P. Benoit put it this way, it is God who sends the persecutions they must undergo, the solid resistance with which they must confront them, and the assurance of salvation which follows. For Paul, God is both the first and the last word in everything he talks about. Salvation is from God. And in this context, the Philippians need reassurance. And so do we. So God is the last word. Everything is from him, including what comes next in verse 29. This godly confidence will lead us to stand together even in suffering. Stand in suffering. That's point number five. Verse 29 says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Salvation is of the Lord from the beginning to the end. Um, In Jonah, chapter 2, verse 9, But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. So this is what Christ has accomplished for us, uh, including faith, the grace that's been given from God. And it's not of works, lest any man should boast. Not only faith was given from God to believe, but also the suffering that comes with your faith. Uh, Christ has allowed you, has granted suffering. Persecution from the world should not be viewed as punishment, but rather as a gift. And this word granted is based upon the word grace. And grace is unmerited divine favor. Men do not deserve. Men do not deserve to suffer for Christ any more than they deserve to be saved through him. The apostles, after their first beating by the Jewish elders, rejoiced uh, that they were accounted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Many Christians are, you know, and many of us are like Peter. In his earlier discipleship. They want the glory of the kingdom without the sufferings of the cross. They would like the faith without conflict. But this re- reveals a lack of understanding of how God deals with his children. Suffering for Christ brings assurance. And we see that in First Peter four fourteen. And it also brings glory to God, Acts 9 16. If we question the legitimacy of referring to suffering as a privilege and a gracious gift, you know, we have to remember that the New Testament regards suffering as God's means of achieving his gracious purposes, both in his own son, Hebrews 2.10, and in all believers, in James chapter 1 and also 1 Peter chapter 1. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 2, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Suffering for wrongdoing or stupid mistakes, that's on us and, and doesn't bring a reward. But when we suffer for Christ, that's because of God. He's allowed us to go through that. So in the midst of any suffering that we experience, We can look to the examples that we have before us, the examples of Paul and for others. And so point number six, in order to be ready, stand with Paul and other examples. Stand with Paul and other examples. The Philippian church saw his imprisonment there in Philippi and his beatings that that took place. And you know that when they would beat somebody in in those days— and if you had a cat of nine tails, it wasn't, you know, something that you would take lightly. It would dig into your skin. It basically would fillet your skin open. It was a brutal beating. Uh, we, tend to li- we live in a world, in the Western world, where we think of persecution. Somebody looks at me in the wrong way. You know, that's persecution. We're not talking about that. These were struggles that the Apostle Paul went through, and that the believers were going through, real-life beatings that were taking place. And we need to look to those examples. And the term conflict here translates into agony, and it was used of strenuous struggles of athletic and gladiatorial contests. It's the same word that's used in the Apostles' charge to Timothy, fight the good fight, that's the agony, of faith. First Timothy 6.12, the Christian life is not easy. It is a war, a battle, a wrestling match. Sure, it's, the suffering is to greater and lesser degrees. Not everybody suffers in the same way as Paul or some, you know, as some of the apostles or even other believers that are in other parts of the world. I mean, we hear all kinds of stories even today of Christians being brutally killed, tortured because of their faith. You may not experience that persecution to the same degree, but it doesn't mean that we take our faith any less lightly. We're still to struggle and struggle in such a way that we bring glory to God. And the examples that we have before us should press us on to be more like Christ and not to be back on our heels, but to be out there as it's a privilege of what we have with God's Word today, what's been entrusted to us as believers in the day that we live. And the only way that we can accomplish this is as the body of Christ. And so work through the struggle, the conflicts that come. The conflict resembles uh, what happens to Paul when he first came to the city, when he first came there to evangelize in Acts sixteen nineteen to 40, they knew what he had experienced. They witnessed it firsthand. And they knew that the gospel was good news, but they also knew another thing. And Steve Lawson put it like this. The gospel is good news, but it is never easy news. It's not an easy message to hear but it is worth the sacrifice that we make because it is the gospel that saves and it is a redeemed life that advances the gospel into the world. We can have joy in the midst of battle because it produces in us consistency, cooperation, and confidence. There's a joy of spiritual teamwork together, you know, that athletic example that Paul gives as we strive together for the faith of the gospel. And so we would want to ask today, you know, what would worthy walkers do? Worthy walkers, those who conduct themselves in a worthy manner. You know, as worthy walkers, those who conduct themselves worthy of the gospel, we take the path together for protection along the way. There might be some snakes robbers or bears along the path. But if you're prepared for any event together, you can deal with those events that take place along that path. And in Christ, together, we can accomplish it. When our time comes to go to be with the Lord, we'll want to remember our demonstration in this world of self-control, confidence in Christ, love for one another, And that we were faithful until the end, even in the face of opposition, maybe vicious opposition, slander and misrepresentation. But we stood firm together, unified for an eternal purpose that will never corrupt or fade away. It's not a fad. That will be the epithet of our lives. We lived a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What more could we desire to be said of us? In the final analysis, we, the body of Christ, have to be united and ready in these six ways. What are those ways? Stand together, number one, as heavenly citizens. Uh, you conduct yourself as, as a citizen of heaven in a worthy manner, and that's before government and God, and we're Christ's ambassadors as well as devoted citizens those are to be citizens of heaven, number one. Secondly, stand together in unity. We have an eternal purpose. It's not a passing fad. This is something for eternity. And we stand together in evangelism. We proclaim the gospel together. And fourth, stand together against the opponents. And fifth, stand together in suffering. Sixth, stand together in our godly examples that we have of Paul and others. And so the message, the bottom line that Paul starts off with, only that, only that one thing, conduct yourselves in a worthy manner. We can only do that together as the body of Christ. We have to get outside of our comfort zone and try to, you know, maybe there's people, Grace Church is a big church. And sometimes you say, oh, it's hard to get to know people. But take the time. You know, you see people that are around you, maybe in church, in big church, every so often, but you never go over and talk to them. Meet them. Get to know them. Be involved in your fellowship group. Get to know the people in your fellowship group. Have people pray for you. Share prayer requests so that you are together praying for the opponents, those who come against the gospel. Pray for their souls to be saved. You're standing unified. You're evangelizing together. You're able to stand together without fear. doesn't mean that there isn't times that you feel some fear, but it's the recognition of knowing that we don't have to be fearful. And even when you suffer together, suffer together for the gospel, or even if it's something going on in your life, you're suffering, maybe not from an individual, but just even a physical thing that's going on, you need that unity of believers. And look to the other examples that are before us in the scriptures for encouragement. Uh, We need to be a a united church. And just look at it this way. The world is divided. It's a bunch of individuals with selfish motivations is what they're going after. How much more will the body of Christ stand out if we are truly united together for one purpose? It's going to stand out. It is. And that's Paul's prayer for the Philippians and for us today. All right, well, let's pray. I think we ran out of time. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for Paul and his message to the Philippians. Help us, Lord, as believers to be united together as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we don't share this burden alone of living in a world amongst unbelievers And just that our hearts go out to those that don't know you. Help us, Lord, to demonstrate the love of Christ through our unity and that we would be citizens of heaven that live in a worthy manner, sacrificing for one another, sacrificing for you, living in a way that doesn't care about ourselves and our own Motivations, but cares about you first and foremost, and about those that you love, our, our fellow brothers and sisters. And thank you most of all, Lord, for giving us that perfect example in yourself and in your Son, Jesus Christ, who put that on display for the world of living a sacrificial life, not lashing out at people in anger, but loving them and telling them the truth at the same time. Help us to be like him. And we just thank you for the opportunity of being here at Grace Church. You've given us so much. Help us to take the blessings, the heritage, the uh, integrity that is here at our church over the years of faithfulness. Help us to use that in a way to glorify you and further the gospel. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Amen.